Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I am in the beautiful Spurgeon Library. If you have not visited the campus of Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, please do. Um, we have a lot of uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful spaces here on campus, but in my mind, the the jewel, the the, uh, the gem in the crown of the campus of Midwestern is the Spurgeon Library, 6,000-plus volumes from the Prince of Preachers' personal library, uh, most with his own notations, uh, a lot of those books under glass on display that you can see, and lots of artifacts, his preaching rail, uh, the doorknob to his study, um, uh, his writing desk, all sorts of things. This is really just a great space. So I'm glad to be here um, on this February morning. I don't know when you'll be listening to this episode quite yet, but it's February. We've got a brief... um, break from the frigid tundra of winter, and I am with my friend and colleague, uh, Ronnie Kurtz. Ronnie is the marketing and social media manager for Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. Uh, He's also a dear friend and also a pastor at Emmaus Church, which is in North Kansas City, um, pretty close to the seminary, actually. And uh, we're going to be talking about today an important topic, something I think is becoming increasingly applicable uh, to those who may even ascribe or subscribe to the so-called gospel-centered movement, which is um, how do you enjoy growth in your church, uh, new, which we'll call numeric growth, um, how do you enjoy numeric growth in your church without going attractional? And I'm glad that Ronnie is here with me. Um, uh, the church where Ronnie pastors, Emmaus Church, is enjoying uh, some great growth right now. So how long ago was Emmaus Planted. Right? We planted on January fourth, twenty fifteen. Okay, so you're about four years old, mm-hmm. or you just passed four years, basically. Yep, just passed four years. So right. into your fifth year, and um, you would say the average attendance is what now? Uh, we're we're right around two fifty or so. Okay, uh, meeting in a theater, outgrowing that space. That's right. Um, I'm a member of Liberty Baptist Church, which is in the northeast area of Kansas City. I mean, it's in it's in Liberty, which is sort of a northeast suburb of Kansas City. And similar thing, our our um, lead pastor, Nathan Rose, came about, this is his seventh year, and the church is essentially a revitalization effort. And um, we have, I think, two Sundays ago, we just hit our highest attendance, which was 300, um, 310, something like that. So um, still small-ish and yet growing. Both of our churches are growing and um in some ways, we have to apologize for that, right? Because mm. to be gospel-centered means that you got to be small, right? <laughs> or you're not really, pre- you know, faithfully preaching the gospel. If people aren't offended by what you're doing, you must not really be preaching. Is, is that grace. is that what you wrote in the new book? The upcoming, <laughs> the upcoming one? It's not. Um, but I love that we're in this age, this season, where people who have big churches have to apologize for it all the time. Because yeah. for the longest time, uh, if you had small churches, you had to apologize for it. Now it's like, guys, man, I just started preaching. I don't know what happened. Overnight, a thousand people showed up. It's like, yeah, dude, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I love that now the shoe's on the other foot. All the big church guys are having to apologize. Uh, whenever they meet me, they have to apologize for it. They're just yeah. like him and Hall, like, dude, it's fine, right? <laughs> so this is what we're going to talk about, actually, is um, uh, enjoying growth, right? So mm. enjoying growth, numeric growth, right? Um, ideally, every church is growing spiritually, and I don't think spiritual growth always entails numeric growth. That's something I do talk about in my new book. Um but I think numeric growth is neutral. It's not bad. Mm. Um, and I think every normal pastor wants more people to come to their church, right? Yeah. Uh, you want to reach more people. You want more people to join you on mission. You want more people to hear the gospel. 
but it's a neutral sign. So for churches that are enjoying growth, how do you avoid the, I think, almost natural drift towards pragmatism? Mm. Uh, Maybe I should define that, which I will do in just a second. How do you avoid the drift into pragmatism? How do you grow without going attractional? Now, I um, distinguish pragmatism from practicality, right? Some people will say, well, er you know, everybody embraces a kind of pragmatism. And they name things like, you know, you meet at 10 a.m. rather than 4 in the morning and that sort of thing. And say, well, that's just a practical reality. I guess you could call that pragmatism. But um, in my mind, pragmatism, I think, is more rightly thought of as a formulaic approach to practicality, right? Christianity is eminently practical, lots of practical decisions that we're making. Pragmatism is really sort of an ethos or a system of thinking in which we think, if I do this, I'll get this result. So pragmatic thinking isn't we're going to meet at 10 a.m. rather than 4. Pragmatic thinking is we're going to meet at 10, and that's going to result in Mm -hmm. such and such, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you enjoy growth, Ronnie? Um, What do you guys do at Emmaus? What are some things that your elder team is thinking through to avoid the drift into sort of, um, you know, you want people to be attracted to your church. Of course. But avoiding the attractional paradigm. Yeah, that's a good question. And and I think you're right. It's it's good to admit um, growth is fun. It's been fun to be a part of a growing church plant. We we planted our, our first meeting ever when we were um, still kind of a core team. We started the, the thing with nine people. And so there was nine of us there, and we met in an upper room, uh, which felt right. I have a coffee shop with the upper room, <laughs> That's right. if you will. And uh, we ended up planting in a suburb of Kansas City called Parkville, Missouri. And we planted above a mom-and-pop science store where you could buy, like, telescopes and magnifying glasses and and fossils. And so we planted above them, and uh, within about, I guess, six months, we had to tear down some walls to expand space just because we had people coming, which was was wonderful. We were able to stay in that space above the science store for a a couple of years, and then we outgrew that. And now uh, about two years ago, we moved into a movie theater just to be able to hold the uh, is more people, and we're actually um, kind of already scratching our heads because it's it's tight in yeah. there already, and so that that's fun, right? We can just say that it's been fun. It's been a fun ride, and I, if I can be frank, I don't really see that stopping. Uh, it seems to be every Sunday more people show up. Yeah. So in terms of what we're doing to kind of monitor that and and battle against pragmatism. Which is, Jared, if, if I can just say this on a personal level, I've been so helped by uh, some of your material on just being This is why I bring you this. on here because you just compliment <laughs> me all the time and uh, it's really great for my ego. Hey, honor where honors do. It's you know? so sanctifying to hear how awesome I am. That's on right. Episode. That's right. <laughs> well, one of the things we have done is, um, again, this isn't going to surprise anyone who knows me here, but be serious about theology and mm-hmm. Look, there are going to be convictions that we have about how the church is supposed to be ran because we do believe God has spoken on that issue, Mm. that he not only commands worship of himself, but he's actually in his kindness ordered that worship in such a a way that that's good for the people and glorifying to him. And so we have theological convictions that are going to butt up against numbers. For instance, we have a very high view of church membership. And uh, we we take the process of church membership seriously. We take um, my role as a pastor. I take it very seriously in terms of when when a brother or sister joins the church and membership. I need to know them. Uh, one of our pastors need needs to know them. 
uh, that they need to be shepherded by somebody. If they're going to be a member of the church, that entails that they have a pastor. And so we, we are very aware of the fact that we're growing, but we're also very aware of the fact that we actually have to pastor these people who are coming. Uh, we also have convictions about um, life of the church outside of Sunday. We, we will not allow our members to live a lone wolf, isolated version of the Christian story. Mm. And uh, we, we, we insist and even write it into their membership covenant that they must be doing life with one another uh, in such a way that they can fulfill the one another's of the New Testament. It's hard to bear one another's burdens if you're never with one another. Yeah. And uh, so, so that, that, that must be in place. And so I think one of the ways to avoid pragmatism, which just says let's eliminate barriers to numbers, is be serious about theology such that uh, if you have to choose between fidelity to your doctrinal convictions and a few more people on a Sunday, the, the choice is obvious. Yeah. It's almost a natural repellent. Of course. <laughs> so that's right. I think uh, – yeah, I mean – to me, it's 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 making sure that those who are attracted are attracted by the right things, exactly. right? And the way that you That's do that is, is by staying convictional about um, certain positions that are implications of the gospel, but certainly the centrality of the gospel, so that the people who are attracted, you know that they're attracted, you know, um, to some extent, you know, to some extent, uh, it's okay, they like this preacher or what have you, but that they're really attracted to the content, to the gospel-centered, uh, you know, teaching that's there. But also just even the convictional sort of, um, I don't want to call it, you know, idiosyncrasies, but there's something that happens, I think, as a church begins to enjoy growth too much or or idolize it where it's, uh, you know, a pragmatic approach or just numbers at any cost. You begin to sand off some of the rough edges of biblical teaching. And, you know, you may not be as upfront about Mm. things the Bible speaks about, whether that's, you know, certain social issues or what have you, you know, you're not going to talk about abortion. You're not going to talk, you know, talk about racial reconciliation or mm. homosexuality or any of those things because, you know, those are hot button issues and they may turn someone off. And so even when it sort of expresses sort of a, you know, sort of a pastoral sensibility, people aren't there yet. They're not, they're not ready to hear that. Mm, we yeah. need to get them with love and mercy first. And then, and it's sort of this Trojan horse of, of things like, no, just preach the word. And leave the results to the Lord, right? So, I mean, don't be, you know, a, a jerk about it or what have you. But, you know, preach what the Bible says and, you know, let the, you know, cards fall where they may, where, um, you know, some will be attracted to that because there's a convictional teaching here um, and and some will not be. Oh, well, I don't believe that. That, that offends me mm-hmm. or what have you. And so you almost have a natural repellent mm-hmm. that way. And I think we see it, and I'm not going to name any examples, but you see it in a lot of, you know, attractional um, spaces, including some of the more popular ones, um, where they don't really take hard stances on some of these convictional issues. For that reason, it could turn someone off. You know, we want to eradicate every barrier we can. It's like, well, what about the barriers that actually the Lord has put in place? That's right. right? We do have to take up our cross. We do have to <laughs> repent of our sin, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so I think there's that. Um, I think also, you know, you, you mentioned membership covenants and that sort of thing. Um, the The way that we can sort of subvert an attractional tendency is by expecting our pastors to actually be pastors. Amen. So and it becomes more difficult. I mean, you can speak to this, right? So you, you've added elders as you've grown. Our church has as well. Um, you, we have to be thinking more complexly uh, as a church grows even more, right? You don't, um, I don't think, you know, a church of 500 or, you know, whatever number you think you may reach or what have you, that you need 20 elders or whatever it is. But, Thinking through systems, thinking through ways of providing meaningful pastoral care 
because it's something that is missing from attractional churches where we're essentially we're there to get people in the room and there's sort of a prevailing anonymity in those environments. I was a part of a um, attractional med, uh, mega church for a little over a decade. And uh, you had to be really intentional about getting to know people, about sort of uh, availing yourself of the the little opportunities there were to meet people and be in relationships with people because everything existed for that weekend service. Mm. And there's like 4,000 people attending. And, you know, and a lot of churches out there, there's even more people than that. And if you're gone, nobody knows. If you have an issue in your life, you might send an email to somebody, but good luck getting a response. So we just have to really think through intentionally That's right. um, scaling pastoral care, having levels of accountability and watchfulness, not just um, pastors over sheep, but sheep with each other. How do we facilitate those sorts of things? Um, another thing that I think is important as a church grows, the opportunity, you can do more. There's more people. There's more money. Um, you maybe have more space depending on, right? So I think both of our churches are thinking through that right now. Are you at, you're at one service maxed out? That's or, right. Okay. That's exactly right. Yeah. You're at one service maxed out. We're at two services. Our space is smaller. We to, we're at two services pretty much maxed out. You know, parking is an issue. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you're just, you're just thinking through like, do we, we need to re- relocate. Like we don't want to, we don't even want two services. We want one service, but yeah, same here. how do we, you know, think through these things? But the opportunities begin to increase as you have more people, you have more resources, you have more space. And you have more ideas, right, because there's people who have more wants and more, to some extent, more needs, but more wants, more desires, more preferences. And you begin to think, man, we could do this or we could do that. Look at all these things that we can do. And I think one of the things that churches to sort of fight the attractional impulse is to to understand that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. Mm. What are some things that you have thought through um, with your fellow pastors at Emmaus that kind of keep you on the main thing, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, two, we, we, we remind ourselves, and I remind myself of two scriptures pretty frequently uh, just to help this conversation in my own head, even kind of my internal compass, if you will, and my conscience on this uh, to subject. One is Acts 20. Uh, I recommend pastors to read Acts 20 probably once a week. Uh, just this the idea that uh, the Lord has seen fit to make you an overseer of the church that he bought with his own blood. So we, we cannot be mistaken. These are his people. Mm. And so as we, we, we must feel the sobriety and the heaviness that comes with that, because if these are his people, we, we have to make decisions that lead to him. And so as we think through our structures and our polity and our programs and, and all of these things, the question I'm always asking and our pastors are always asking is, does this make much of him? Hmm. If this is his people, this is his church with his people where we preach his gospel all for his glory, does it lead to him? Yeah. And so I think Acts 20 is really helpful. Another one is um, Matthew 16, just thinking through that dialogue between Jesus and Peter, which is just so magnificent. I wish I could have seen it when Jesus asked that that all important question of who do you say that I am? You know, and Peter says, you are Christ. And and he says, you're right. And on this rock, I'll build my church. Mm. And I think there's something for us there that what Christ is going to build his church on is, is a right confession of who he is. Um, he's not going to build it on a program that I've come up with my ingenuity. He's not going to build it on some creative slogan that I came up with. Uh, he's going to build it on his gospel. So no gimmicks, no games. 
just his gospel. That's what he's going to build his church on. And so we, I think those two filters are, does it make much of the gospel? Does it make much of Jesus? Uh, become helpful filters as we think about growth. And th- they're, they're, that helps us kind of come off of the ledge as, as we hear the siren song of pragmatism. It kind of helps us, you know, uh, stay on the boat as, as, as we're moving forward. In terms of, uh, I know Liberty, because our, our churches share uh, such a close relationship, and I love, I love your pastors and, and look to them frequently for advice, and, and, and we're, we're so similar in that this is decision time. Yeah. We're talking about multiple services, and, and to some of the listeners here, the thought of us talking about growth when my church is at 250 and your church is at 310 is going to be laughable to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this is bigger than we've ever been. Yeah. And we are growing. And, and so these kinds of decisions like services and more pastors and more programs and, and all of those, we're making those right now. Uh, I, have a, I have a pastor's meeting Thursday where we'll be making some of these decisions. And if we're not careful, a movement towards what's easiest yeah. is gravity. And we have to allow the to what pulls us out of that gravitational force being what makes much of Jesus and what's good for his people. Yeah. What, what I really appreciate about my pastors is um, as they thought through this second service idea, um, they didn't just ask, can we do it? Like, what are the logistics? Right. right. In a lot of churches, it's like it's a no brainer. You're out of space. You're out of service. Yeah. Add as many as you need to, you know, to do this. And so it's just almost an uncritical way of, of um, you know, just uh, accommodating the growth, right? So That's what, right. What a blessing that all these people want to come to our church. But our guys didn't just ask the can or, or how would it work? You know, you need, you know, double the children's ministry volunteers and the parking lot attendants and all these sorts of things. But they asked, should we do this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's the win? What's the loss? Um you know, is it worth staying at one service if that just means, hey, we're limited to 150, 200 people or whatever, you know, can fit in our building? Um, and and that's it. People just have to go find another place or what have you. And so they're thinking through the theological implications. Does this mean now we're two churches? Like if, you know, are people existing in almost two communities in one church? How do we um, subvert that experience? Exactly. So, you know, they're not just assuming that if we can do something, we should do it. And I just think that's a helpful guideline for a lot of churches as they grow. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Mm. All right, we're going to come back to that point. Um, but first, let's take a break and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're talking about growing without going attractional. How do you enjoy numeric growth? I want to reiterate, um, if you're a pastor who's enjoying some growth at your church, uh, that it's okay if you to do that in, uh, in the spirit of grace, to enjoy all of the good gifts that God has given you. But what we're talking about is how do you not come to a place of idolatry? How do you not come to a place of existing for that numeric growth? 
um, but essentially you're existing to make disciples. And if the Lord wants to give you more people resources um, among whom and with which to make more disciples, uh, glory be to him. And so how do we keep that the main thing? How do we keep the gospel at the central, uh, at the center of all we do, even as we may enjoy um, more people coming to see what we do and be a part of what we do? We were just speaking about um, making sure that uh, that not every can becomes a should, right? So just because mm-hmm. we can do something doesn't mean we ought to do it. And I think part of it is really the stubborn simplicity, staying um, staying simple. I'm a big fan of the simple church concept. I think for different contexts, different um, you know circumstances, different cultures, um, people can be um, more simple than others. I think you know I think there's <laughs> degrees of complexity that are. Okay, but I I generally think, and and you you know somewhat re- I think spoke to it uh, in the earlier part of the discussion when you talked about um, keeping the sheep engaged with each other during the week that you're not just a Sunday morning experience and you know you really want this experience of community and I think how you facilitate that is important but also the sort of things that you may do that may distract from your main purpose mm. right so as the church grows as we've said do, you have more opportunity to do more things. And so if you just start adding programs because you can. Hey, we can have a rec, th- you know, That's program. Right. We can have this, yeah. that, the other thing. There's a lot of, I think, potential problems with that. One of which is um, I speak to and consult with quite a few churches who grew big at one point, their their heyday, right, when they were in their prime. And, man, they, like, they shot for the moon. They, you know, they didn't ask should we. They asked can we. And they did a bunch of stuff. Now they're in a period of pruning or decline or what have you. And they've got these big empty buildings and mm. things that cannot be used or whatever it is. And obviously that can impact any church. Um, but beyond that, the more you do, the more potential danger there is in distracting someone from the gospel. So how do you guys uh, arrange your service or arrange your ministry, the life of your church, in such a way that you know, you're not just meeting on Sunday morning. You're not just existing for Sunday morning. Um, and yet you're thinking through how do we keep people – um, centered on the gospel rather than mm. just coming to us as a religious resource center. Kind of yeah, thing. that's so, such a helpful question. When we were right before we planted, we actually met. There were three of us who were kind of, you know, the, the planting pastors. And we met for about six or seven months before we ever planted, before our, ever, our, our first Sunday. And we were working through everything you'd want to have worked through. So bylaws and membership ideas and, and kind of the, the church covenant and those kinds of things, working through our liturgy, how is Sunday morning going to feel, what was the culture going to be like on a Sunday morning. And as we marched through liturgy, we were kind of thinking about the service, and the question kept coming back to how many times can we explicitly make the gospel known during however long we're going to have a Sunday morning. And I remember this like this moment where – I was working through what we had planned, and I said, if I'm not mistaken, I see five times where the gospel is not just alluded to, but it's, it's made explicitly o- available to everybody. And uh, one of our planting pastors uh, said, we got to start over. That's not enough. <laughs> and, uh, and I love his name. That brother's name was Kevin, and I love that impulse from Kevin, and that has kind of become the impulse of the, of the church is – However many times we're hearing the gospel, it's not enough. We, not need, enough. we need a few more. Mm-hmm. And so as we think about community, uh, we've just tried really hard, sometimes better than others, to root the thing in the gospel. 
And uh, if our people see that Jesus made himself little for the good of others, we hope that our people in their desire to be Christ-like will make themselves little for the good of others. And they will see to it that they'll fulfill the one another's in the New Testament in such a way that that is Christ-like and is, is mirroring, mirror, mirroring, that's a tough word, <laughs> what he did on our behalf. And, um, and so just this concept of a, a question we ask a lot is, how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus impact this thing we're trying to do? Mm. And so if we're trying to foster a culture of community, let's just start with that question. To get the ball rolling, how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus impact our theology of community? Um, So you would say Emmaus is a purpose-driven church. You You know, I have a friend who uses the phrase gospel-driven church. So, yeah. yeah. He sounds like a very wise man. Yeah, he's He's great. (laughs) (laughs) No, so I think what you're alluding to is really important as well because it's not necessarily that there's a certain – that there's a magic number. Like these are the things, right? Obviously, there are irreducible things that a church does to be a church. That's right. And then in terms of what you add to that, to your programming or your ministry opportunities or whatever you want to call it, the life of your your, your community, that's somewhat of a you know neutral thing. And, and so – but what we're suggesting is whatever you're adding um, and, and, and the things that are irreducible, that you're making those things explicitly about uh, making people see the finished work of Christ Amen. and applying the finished work of Christ yeah. in their life. So it doesn't mean that Christians can't get together and play you know, board games. And I can't. I remember um, at my church plant in Nashville, I had a fellow who he just loved um, uh, contemporary Christian music. So, so you know, we tried to disciple him uh, into something more mature. But no, uh, no, which is fine. So he loved Christian music. Um, I loved some Christian music at that time. But he loved concerts. That was like his big deal. Anytime anyone came to town, and we were in Nashville, so there's like there's something oh, to my. see. Yeah. And he wanted us to have essentially like a concert you know, formal concert program or, or minister. Or I don't know if you call it ministry, but he wanted us to advertise like, hey, we're all going to go to a concert type of thing. And what made it difficult is we were really small, like really small. It would not have been difficult at all. Like we could easily do that. Of course, yeah. And yet I decided, no, no I mean, I don't know, you know, this is not a key aspect of what we do. And so I was trying to explain to him, no, we're really stubborn about simplicity here. We essentially, we we revolve formally around three things, our worship gathering, community groups, and a monthly service project. We're in the inner city doing community service. Those are the three things we're going to do. Essentially, gospel community mission, that's it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you can't invite people here to go to a concert with you or what have you. But we're not going to make this a functional program, Mm. right, some sort of um, recreational program or an entertainment program. We're not going to become a full-service sort of buffet mentality church. Mm. And a lot of churches do that. Once they have the resources, they begin to do that. But I, I think you have to start now, even before you get to that point, even if it may seem pretty logical, um, hey, you could easily do this. It's not a big deal. That, that that was one thing he couldn't get. I was trying to explain the philosophy. Yeah. And he was thinking pragmatically. That's it was right. It's like, it's not a big deal. We could easily do it. Put it on Facebook, you know, put it on the on the website, whatever. And I'm like, no, no, philosophically, we want we don't want anyone to be distracted about what we're about. Mm. This is what we're about. This is what we're going to do. So it doesn't keep you from inviting a friend to go to a concert, but we're going to be stubbornly simple. Um, That's so good. And, yeah. and one of the things that helps with that exact mindset, Jared, is, is it, again, if I can just encourage all of the listeners here to take theology seriously, if, if pastors are laying in bed at night, scratching their head, wondering, what is my church supposed to be doing? Yeah. Something's gone wrong. Yeah. You should know. What your church is doing and what the mission of the church is. And if you have a clear vision from Scripture, um, 
with, with solid theology, if you have that, your mind made up on what this church is supposed to be doing, you can use that as a filter to do exactly what you just described of this is where we're going. Yeah. And when we come together corporately, we're marching this direction. Now, if, if while we're scattered, not in the corporate gathering, uh, you want to pursue these good endeavors, then by all means, pursue them. Yeah. But when we're together as the assembly, we're marching in this direction, and we're stubborn about, about the direction we're marching in. Yeah. I think people have a natural – Christians have a natural tendency to drift from th- from the gospel, right? Like mm. we're, we're, we have this sort of gospel amnesia that takes place almost every single day, really every single day. Um, you know, I think it's why like 15 chapters into 1 Corinthians, not that he knows he's writing chapters, but, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 <laughs> – uh, Paul, like, just, you know, suddenly, now I would remind you, brothers, yes. that the gospel is like, well, hold yes. on, like, hey, come on, Paul, these are, this is the church, <laughs> they know the gospel. No, I mean, he, he he's bringing it up. I would remind you, brothers, the gospel that I preached right. to you, unless you believed in vain, right? Um, so we have this forgetfulness. So the more distractions or the more opportunities that have nothing to do with that, that we sort of make a part of our programming, increases um, really the amount of consumer-driven uh, Christians uh, it affects the discipleship process that we have. Uh, just recently, um, some uh, research came out in the evangelical uh, internet. Tom Rainer did a piece on it. William Vanderbloman did a piece on it about the dearth of uh, replacement successors in the megachurch world. Uh, so as older megachurch pastors are retiring, they're having trouble finding younger replacements for mm. these pastors. And I'm really thought about this because – um, you, you're looking at churches of at least, I mean, I don't know what qualifies as a mega church these days. I think 2,000 is kind of where they put it, uh, which is really interesting. Um, but 2,000 or more, we'll just say, right? Uh, churches that have existed for at least 10 years, maybe a little bit less, but at least 10 years, have at least 2,000 people. And you're telling me that there's no process from within to develop somebody capable of feeding the sheep and leading the mission, Right. Um, which is very interesting, so right because they're always looking outside, which um, tells me that it's not necessarily a pastor you're looking for; mm. it's a personality. That's right. Who, who's an attractant, dynamic, what have you? Um, and so, if your system is that large, right? So, like, I'm, if you've got a church of a hundred and you're you're doing revitalization efforts, I'm not beating up on you for not being able to raise up your replacement right now, you know. But if you've been going for a while and you have thousands of people, you have the resources. The idea that your discipleship system is set up to where you don't have um, capable, competent, qualified mm. um, people being produced, there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. I think you're you're off mission if you have to then go hire from outside to kind of replace, mm. um, uh, you know, somebody for a church that size, right? If you can't replicate That's right. what you're doing, um, and I think it just speaks to that sort of issue of like we want a personality and not necessarily a pastor mm. or a pastor who is a personality or really kind of the celebrity type thing. All right, let's finish with this. I think um, one way that we sort of can subvert the uh, attractional impulse as we grow numerically is by making sure with our preaching that we're preaching towards community. Mm. Um, you know, I was a part, as I said, of an attractional megachurch for a while. They tr- were constantly troubleshooting for at least 10 years the community problem. Why don't our, why don't our people want to be in community with each other? And so we throw programs at it. We had all different kind of iterations of small groups, right? All kinds of small group stuff. We did Bible studies. Nobody's interested. 
We did affinity groups, right? So if you like softball or you like <laughs> want to be in the drum circle or whatever it is, uh, you go to these things. You know, it just it, it never took off. We didn't have a large percentage of people interested. Okay, let's try demographic age groups, right? So young, you know, you know, twenty somethings in this area and all sorts of things. Nobody was ever interested. Well, at the time, it's not like I knew, but looking back, I'm thinking, okay, all of the preaching, all of the messaging coming out of the church is aimed at the individual mm. felt need of the solo seeker, essentially, right? So not necessarily even the Christian, but just you want to be a better employee, you want to be a better, That's you know, right. you know mm. this or that, the other thing. We're addressing a felt need for you as an individual. So it's very self-help, kind of moralistic, what Christian Smith calls um, – Moralistic therapeutic deism was kind of the embraced philosophy. But even if you're doing, you know, story preaching or what have you, if you're always aiming at the individual, 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 you're not um, stoking or, or or nurturing someone's desire to live out their Christianity right. in community. So I think this goes for mission as well, um, you know, that you're preaching people towards mission. So it could be as simple as using we language more than I or you. Um, that's just one sort of you know, sort of implicit or mm-hmm. you know, subliminal way to approach it. But even just your application, um, is your application very individual-oriented? Here's how you can apply this in your life, or this is how we as a church can apply what we're talking about here together. Um, it, it affects your illustrations, applications, certainly your exposition. But I think if you preach toward community, you begin to foster more of that community, mm-hmm. and you subvert people's individualistic, consumeristic impulses, and that can work towards the sort of cultural expectation of attractional. Um, anything else you can think of that might? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And and we early on when we planted the church, we preached first through the book of Hebrew, or sorry, the book of Ephesians. Okay. And we eventually, probably two or three books later, we preached through the book of Hebrews. And maybe the best thing we ever did for the community in our church was just preaching through the book of Hebrews, mm. and just this constant idea of. Um, Jesus is the greater X, mm. you know, that, that theme through the book. And so what, what we saw happening as we were expositing this book was we were constantly repeating that refrain, Jesus is the greater X, so look forward, not backward. Mm. And then this uh, another theme that happens through the book of Hebrews is just this concept of, of, of crossing, crossing the Jordan. You know, he, Jesus is a better leader because he can actually get you across the river. Mm. And, and so there was this concept of we're, that's where we're going, church, all of us in this room. We're, we're marching there. We, we want to cross the river. We don't want to die on the banks of the promised land. We want to actually enter and, and, and see our Savior. And so we're marching there together, all of us, hand in hand, we're going. And you, you better make sure I don't die on the bank of the promised land, <laughs> and I'm going to do the same thing for you, brother. And, and we're, we're marching. And, and, and as we march your responsibility, you answer the question, am I my brother's keeper, with an emphatic yes. Mm-hmm. And you make sure, as your brother's keeper, that he crosses the Jordan. And showing your people the beauty of that design, of biblical community, from the text, make it, make it jump out of the text. And then, and then show them the joy in it, too. That there's just, Not only is this a biblical idea and a good idea, it's a joyful idea. Um, the sweetest times of when I think about sweet moments in the history of our church, I think about brothers and sisters in my living room with my wife and I. Uh, I don't think about programs. Mm. And so show them from the tech, show them from theology, show them from their own life experience and joy. This is what we have to do as believers is we're, we're marching together uh, to see him. 
That's beautiful. On that note, you were preaching a little bit, brother. You yeah, preaching. I, I can't. I can't not. You do need it. to remember Sorry. this is not preaching and preachers. That's, right. that's, that's Jason <laughs> Allen's podcast. Uh, so, but I, we're grateful for that. Thank you, Ronnie, for joining me uh, on the program. Thank you, dear listener, uh, for paying just even a little bit of attention. I hope we've made your lawn mowing or your errand running or your morning commute uh, go a little bit more smoothly. I hope we're a blessing to you. Thank you for listening. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.